Hello and welcome to the Journey Further podcast, a show where we learn from the people and businesses who are on a mission to do things differently. Today's guest is science and technology writer Gemma Mill, who is the author of the recently published book Smoke and Mirrors, How Hype Obscures the Future and How to See Past It. She has a really interesting view on the way we communicate about science and technology and how the hype which gets generated around certain solutions can sometimes help but also often hinder our understanding and progress in these areas. From farming to space exploration via AI and cancer treatment, I've never understood hype in this way before, so I'm sure you'll also learn something by listening to this. I hope you enjoy the show. Gemma, hello, and thank you for for joining us on the podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Well, virtually. (laughs) Virtually, at least. I'd like to start the discussion, as we do with every episode, by asking you the question, what's the wrong you want to write? So the wrong that I want to write is the idea that it's only scientists and people with PhDs and lab coats who are allowed and indeed able to critically engage with science and tech. And as a science writer yourself, when did that mission really start to become clear in your mind that it wasn't just people educated in a certain field who should be able to tackle the questions around it? To be honest, it's kind of, I guess there's two parts to that story. The first part is actually when I was really, really young. So I, I've always loved um, science and math. I studied maths at university and I always wanted my mum to get the feeling that I got um, when I came across a really amazing proof. <laughs> it's been like my, my like life's mission to get her to get the the awe and the joy and the wonder and the just penny drop moment that you get when you engage with maths and and particularly proofs. Um, you know, it, it's closer to like looking at a piece of artwork than like completing a problem. Um, so that's kind of where it started it was it was more from a sense of like oh you're really missing out on this like amazing thing by not um feeling like you're able to engage or allowed to engage if you're not studying it or it's something that you have expertise in but um i guess more recently um it's reflecting on i don't know i guess that the world of science and tech now we all know is being talked about in a much more critical way than perhaps what most of us grew up with. We all grew up with this idea that, you know, science is truth and, you know, you get taught stuff at school and that's reality and you've not to question it. You've just to try and remember it and pass your exams and move on with your life. Um, and now we're, you know, having discussions on the 10 o'clock news about Facebook and FX and contact tracing apps and, you know, internet things and basically the impacts that science and tech have on society. But, you know, even though that conversation is happening, a lot of people feel that because they don't have expertise in it, they're not able or allowed to engage. And I think that's actually part of the problem. The fact that we don't have other voices, we don't have, you know, quote unquote, regular people as part of these discussions as part of the reason why science and tech sometimes uh, goes a bit astray. So for me, it's kind of both, a, I really want more people to be involved because it's amazing, but also because I think for the world to be a better place, we need more people um, critically engaging in this space yeah that's really interesting i mean when i was reading smoke and mirrors that was one thing which kind of occurred to me i was kind of like how has our exposure to all of this stuff changed through the media and everything over the past decade or or Mm. so that like but even i'm reading through these chapters thinking like i know so little about so many of these (laughs) things 
And I guess what advice would you give to someone who I guess is in a position of not being a scientist or someone in technology, but someone who wants to just start breaking down a complex topic uh, and start understanding a bit more about it? I think the the very first thing to do is to not get caught up in thinking that you are not going to be able to do it or that you're not allowed. So that, that's the very first thing, just kind of you are allowed and you are able. Um, there are different levels of knowledge and you can engage without having a PhD. Absolutely. The second thing that I kind of give it as advice is ask one question um, repeatedly when you read things, which is what does this depend on? So if you read a headline that says, you know, I don't know, AI is going to steal your job or, um, I don't know, quantum computing is the next revolution or whatever. It's, it's what does that depend on, right? And so you can start going, okay, well, does it depend on the people who are involved? Does it depend on which jobs this affects? Does it depend on which country this exists in? So on and so forth. These questions that, frankly, you don't need any expertise at all. And it's, it's basically prompting curiosity. And that allows you to basically frankly, give yourself something to Google and give yourself a line of thinking to start asking questions without going, okay, I better go and get a a book on quantum physics from the library and start there because then it can feel like this extremely long journey. It's more about going, okay, well, what questions do I have? What do I think is interesting here? What doesn't make sense for me? And then dive in um, from that perspective. And I guess the thing that the whole book is around this, how hype obscures the future, I guess is is hype something which thrives on people not asking those questions? Yeah, for sure. I mean, hype hype is only works when it's an illusion. And and this is something that I, I speak about a lot is this idea that hype really is a tool for capturing attention. It is not a tool for understanding, right? It's it's used to get people to stop scrolling when they're on Twitter and stop a particular thing and go, oh, I'm going to read this or, oh, I'm going to take this idea and believe it or whatever. It's not there to actually give you knowledge or actually uh, give you the specifics. It's just to get you to stop. And so when you understand that and realize that, it allows you to kind of reframe um, I guess a message that you come across to not being something that is absolute truth, but rather is something that has intrigued you. And you can go, oh, well, why has that intrigued me? Why has it made me feel a certain way? What emotion? Am I angry? Why am I angry? Um, am I scared? Why am I scared? Am I intrigued? Why am I intrigued? And it's it's just about kind of trying to stop it in its tracks and trying not to, to basically... Uh, you know, fall for what it's trying to do. And it doesn't make you stupid for falling for these things. That's literally the point of, you know, marketing, advertising hype is to capture your attention. But in order to engage, you have to be able to kind of realize that and then take the next step, which is ask a question. Um, or even for a second go, what if that's not true? What does it mean? You know, it's it's small things like that that, that stops it in its tracks. What are the sort of signs then of when hype is being used for good to attract attention, to spark discussion, and when it's being used to, I guess, feign understanding yeah. or or go that step? How do you tell the difference between the two? How do you spot that? Um, I mean, this is really based on your sort of moral view of the world, to be honest. It's what do you think is fair game to to get people to care about and what isn't? Some people would argue that, you know, today a lot of the stuff that's that's going on on 
um, in terms of media is getting people to download the contact tracing app, right? Which I would say that's hype for good. I, down, I downloaded it about half an hour ago. Oh, I'm struggling. I have to do the update on my iPhone and I don't have enough space. So I've been like ferociously trying to delete photos all morning and all, oh, what a faff, but I will do it um, once we finish this interview. But yeah, so like I, I would argue that some of the people tweeting about it, some of the people trying to capture attention to get people to download this app are using the tool of hype. And because I believe that we should, you know, band together and try and beat the coronavirus and all this sort of thing, um, I you could argue that that's hype for good. Um, but then, you know, some people might say, oh, you know, freedom of thought and we shouldn't ever be kind of not given the full story and blah, blah, blah. And then you might say that hype is um, not moral in that sense. So it does come down to like what you view the world. But I think you also have to consider things like, for instance, if why why is someone trying to capture your attention is it for public health reasons is it to get you to spend your money on something um is it to get you to vote for a particular political party like what is the intent behind it and that could be one of your questions right what does this depend on well does this depend on who's saying it does this depend on why they're saying it you know um and suddenly you you start looking at messages in a, in a different kind of way and ideas in a different kind of way and it's not about not believing everything um critical thinking is not about um being skeptical in a diminishing way it's more about fostering this kind of I don't know, positive or productive doubt that basically allows you to try and go deeper, not dismiss, but understand to a deeper level and frankly, you know, engage in a way that's that's better for both you and society as a whole. Yeah, because I one of the things I jotted down was like, what's a healthy level of skepticism? What's a healthy yeah. level of, of cynicism to have? Because it can be quite paralyzing to be too cynical or too sure. skeptical. Sure. I mean, well, hey, <laughs> if you ask too many questions, you you end up going, you know, is any of this real? Is this all an illusion? You know, you start getting into sort of deep philosophy and all this sort of stuff so you know that's the kind of question that people have been wrestling with for years and again that comes back to your own personal thing for me where i think about this what's a sort of healthy level of skepticism it really becomes relevant when you start thinking about things like uh climate science uh sort of anti-vax movements places where the idea of healthy skepticism has kind of been weaponized to get people to believe a particular thing which is not about being skeptical it's rather about doubt and saying that one side is wrong so i think it's about making sure that you're not going so far to disbelief um lots of prevailing expertise um but rather trying to understand the nuance and what those experts are saying and understand the limits um of what they can know and what you can know and so on and so forth um so it isn't about i guess you know disbelieving absolutely everyone and having this kind of conspiratorial view of the world um but rather just going i'm not going to just take things at face value i want to confirm that with three other sources (laughs) or i want to understand um you know i want to read this narrative from three different political standpoints and see if they agree right does the three the two main political parties in, in the uk agree on climate yeah they do so mm, it's not it's kind of confusing when you start thinking about it from a political standpoint so again it's just looking at how can i reframe this idea how can i look at it from different perspectives how can i confirm it without only looking at one source one headline one tweet
Hey there, Nathan here with the usual reminder for you to join the Journey Further book club. We read the best business books so you don't have to, sharing bite-sized insight from every chapter straight into your inbox so you can learn and get ahead even if you're short on time. It's free to join, it just takes one minute to sign up. Click the link in the show notes or head to journeyfurther.com. That's interesting, the mention of sort of politics, because I, th- I think one of the key points you try and make in the book is that science and technology don't exist in this sort of silo. Um, right. and they do all this research and make things over here and, and everything has a knock-on effect. But I guess when you think of something like like anti-vax movement or something like that, that's probably a case where the science should be kind of a, a lot more sacred. And it's like people might be... People trying to make a point are often not doing it because they're trying to challenge the science. They're doing it for maybe like a political yes. stance instead, right? Yeah. And again, it's asking the same questions. Why are they doing it? What are the incentive structures? You know, it, it, to really fully understand the world of science and tech. And if you, if, you know, if you wanted to be um, infinitely endowed with with information and knowledge, you you can't only understand science and tech. You'd also have to understand how laws work, how politics work, how society works, how history has worked, how the future works. And of course, you can't know all of those things. However, if you do want to understand science and tech, my sort of premise is that you it's not about only understanding what's in the science and tech textbooks. It's also about understanding even just the basics of politics, the basics of um, sort of, I don't know, society and culture, right? And that, again, can start to feel overwhelming. But where I just worry is that science tech does become quite siloed. And again, you have the same voices with the same knowledge that craft um, this field, which is where where it becomes worrying. And to kind of add on to that, I'm actually I'm actually starting a PhD on on Monday coming in like oh three wow. days time. It's a bit scary, but anyway, I'm very excited. And it's in a field called science and technology studies, which is basically history, philosophy, politics, sociology um, of science and tech. So kind of the social sciences put on science and tech, and the kind of core, I guess, thesis or theory or you know thing that everybody. Um, bases things on and believes within STS is that science shapes society and society shapes science. And it sounds like a really obvious thing to say. Um, but, you know, when I kind of stumbled upon STS a while back, I was like, huh, that's like a really interesting core idea to base scholarship on and base your understanding on. Why don't why doesn't everybody do that? Why don't we think about science and tech like that? So in some sense, Smoke and Mirrors, I suppose, mirrors that idea and, you know, tries to not only say to, you know, the populace that are not in science and tech, hey, you should be part of this. It's also saying to those who are in science and tech, hey, you should probably pay attention to what's outside of your immediate vicinity. You do need to understand mm. other areas of this. You need to understand history. You need to understand philosophy. You need to understand politics to really put into context what you're doing on a day to day basis. I mean, this might be a really stupid question, but then I guess in terms of the society shaping science, what are the major factors that you see right now which are doing the shaping, or is that an impossible? No, no, no. Well, I mean, gosh, where do you start? I mean, politics is a is a perfect example. Politics informs funding. You know, so okay, put it even a step back. Culture 
which informs uh, and shapes how people feel and think and believe, shapes how they vote, shapes how they um, put particular politicians in particular places, which ends up shaping funding, which ends up shaping what science and technology research is done in the first place. So you could argue that culture massively impacts what is even done in a lab because of how it's funded or which politicians are shaping um, which policies go through in terms of regulation of science and tech. You're not allowed to study this sort of thing because there's some law or whatever or vice versa. So, you know, or the market that massively shapes which kind of technologies are built, who wants to buy what. There's a really um, a big example that's used a lot in STS, which is around the bike. Originally, the um, the, the penny farthing bike, you know, the one that was the big wheel. Yeah, yeah. And that was a sort of symbol of like masculinity. It was really hard to cycle and it was, you know, all this. And the, the bicycle manufacturers were like, well, this is not a great market because no women are really interested in this penny farthing and men that don't sort of either feel able or want to be seen as masculine are using this penny farthing so we should maybe create a different bike and then they created the, the safety bike or the normal bike that, that we now kind of think of today with the same size wheels that's society shaping what's developed in the world of of technology and therefore what then comes back and shapes society now women can cycle all men can cycle so on, so on and so forth so you then shape culture back the way so mm. when you take a, that sounds like a really obvious thing to say you know the market shapes what research has done, funding shapes what's done in the lab. But I think without starting with that perspective with science and tech, we get lost in going, well, I don't understand quantum theory, so I can't possibly have an opinion on the new iPhone that comes out because I don't have a PhD in this. When really it's like, well, what does the market look like? What you know, adverts were put in front of children's TV shows that influenced how kids, you know, demand toys. For instance, you know, these sort of things have such an impact and we need to start there as opposed to starting from, well, what was Chemistry 101 at high school? Hmm. I mean, maybe one of the more positive things to come out of the crisis at the moment perhaps could be politicians and, and governments continuing to follow the science as they as this yeah. the thing which they're having to say at the moment well we're following the science so we're making these changes or introducing these laws or working on this vaccine but hopefully that's something which continues way beyond well yes yes <laughs> i would hope that we would we would follow science in this in, in the sense that if if you take a step further we, we follow reason or you know we make decisions because it it makes sense when you analyze it to some degree <sighs> But we also have to bear in mind that even the narrative we're following the science is hype because it's not actually true that the government is always following the science. They haven't been doing um, all the time what the SAGE uh, team has been putting forward. There was a mm. point where um, you know the, the chief medical officer and whatnot were going against what the government was saying. They were putting out different statements. So the government saying we're following the science isn't actually true, but saying it, it, you know, makes people feel positively about the government. Mm. So you also have to remember that um, science is sometimes used, or the idea of using science is sometimes used as a, um, I don't know, a shortcut to kind of say to people, don't worry, we're doing things properly. Um, but then you go, you know, the, the, what does this depend on? Well, what science are you following? Which scientist are you following? By following, do you mean doing it now? Or are you following it three weeks later than when it was originally announced, right? So again, it's, it's you know, asking questions and just going a little bit further than only believing that one headline, that one narrative that's been put forward. 
Yeah, because I did see one thing and uh, it and it was talking about that phrase itself and it was kind of suggesting, I can't, I can't remember who tweeted it, so I won't be able to attribute this to them, but <laughs> it was kind of saying like you shouldn't, science isn't something to be followed, it's something to be engaged with yes. or challenged or built upon. Right. And yeah, the idea of just following it is a very passive yeah, that, that's a hundred percent it. And and this is kind of, I suppose, going back to the first question you asked me about the wrong that I want to write. It's I, I really do believe that um, engaging with science and tech as opposed to, I don't know, watching it or being entertained by it or letting it pass you by or whatever, not only means that you're not really fully understanding it. Um, it also means you're not really, I guess, getting to enjoy it. But there's a third element to this, which I actually don't go so hard in the book on, but I think I do believe this, is that I think it's a bit of a citizen duty to engage with science and tech and not just let it be fed to you. In the same way that we talk about voting, it's a duty of the citizen to vote, right? It's not in a law, right? But that's culturally how we talk about voting. You should vote. Mm. People fought for this. This is how you, you know, exercise your democratic right. Well, engaging with science and tech in my mind is also how you exercise your democratic right. Because if you're not engaging with it, if you're not thinking about it, if you're not allowing yourself to go a little bit beyond just what you're being fed, um, then it's happening to you. And you're not going to have any control um, over it. And I think this is this is sometimes where fear comes into um, science and tech. You know, some I think a lot of people can feel that um, I don't know the world is moving faster than they can keep up. And this is particularly true for people who are worried about jobs being replaced by automation, um, by things getting more complicated, by devices. You know, not being able to keep up with what's happening in the world. Um, in terms of science and tech. And that's a very real fear and it's a very fair fear. Um, I think one way of being able to, I guess, maybe not feel so fearful is, is engaging, is not going, this is really scary. I don't understand this. I don't have a PhD. Um, my job's going to be replaced. Oh, I don't know what's going on. It's engaging and then going, oh, there are people that are you know, on my side or fighting my corner or making these points can I join their campaign? Can I vote for them? Can I, you know, patronize their businesses as opposed to others, right? There, there, it, it isn't, I think, looking on science and tech and seeing it as this one thing that's kind of deterministic, everything's just moving in one direction. That's not true. There's lots of people um, fighting for this more socially um, engaged form of science and tech. And, you know, as more citizens get involved and exercise what they believe is the right way to do things, which of course is going to be different for every citizen, um, the more science and tech and therefore the future can be determined by citizens and not by those who are just in the know in science and tech. Because mm. no, uh, when I was reading the the chapter about well about batteries and then about fueling fueling technology, I was kind of thinking like so much of the stuff you've seen in the news about TikTok and it maybe tr trying to ban it in the US and then like five G and all this type of stuff. It's like these are sort of such headline yeah. things, but actually, when as you kind of written about in the book like there's much bigger questions going on here like if you wanted to be worried about something to do with china like you could dive into what you're talking about about batteries and yeah. the, the the domination of that and the yeah. exploitation of the minerals and the people all, all all involved and yeah i guess where does that line lie in the future for you like how much more powerful can the science and technology companies become like 
obviously this is a debate which is going on yeah. now, but where does the line lie essentially between science and technology and politics or where should it lie? I don't, to be honest, I really don't think that there's a line. There's not like a demarcation. Um, they really are intertwined. And there's obviously parts of politics that have nothing to do with science. And there's parts of science that arguably don't have anything to do with politics, but they are really intertwined. I think when we talk about, I guess, you know, control and power and, you know, you mentioned things like, you know, the, the sort of trade wars that are going on and particularly with sort of US and China relations and whatnot, that can feel really far away. And, um, you, you know, what's that got to do with me? I can't do anything um, that's going to change any of that. I can maybe have an opinion on it and talk about it over dinner, but that's really it. There's not much more there. Um, but I think when you start looking at things like, the power that different kinds of technologies and company and therefore companies and also therefore governments have, it does come down to users and people's um, interaction with that technology, whether it's the purchasing of it or the giving of data to it or the authorization of it or the consent or whatever. So there's this really good um, book coming out. I think it actually comes out today, um, is my oh, understanding, wow. um, by a woman called Carissa Villies. I'm really sorry if I pronounced that correctly um, or incorrectly. Um, which is all about privacy and the power that you can have um, when you control privacy and your data around around tech. And we talk about this a lot, but what really captured me about what um, Carissa does, and she she's a philosopher in Oxford, and she also wrote an essay on Aeon. I never know how you pronounce that, Aeon or Aeon magazine, um, that was just out this week, which is really great if you want a summary of the book. She's basically okay. putting forward um, this idea that it might feel that there's all this power that these technologies companies have, that these governments have and so on and so forth. But at the end of the day, their power um, relies on the data that you give to them. They are powerful, they are wealthy and so on and so forth. Not because they own your data, but because they sell to other people, um, I guess, the the ability to analyze and know stuff generally as a result of this ownership of data. So when we start thinking a bit more about our role as users, our role as individuals, our role as people within a data set, frankly, um, you can start rethinking what power looks like to, to companies and to governments. Um, you know, unless you're a, a competition lawyer out there, you're not going to be able to redraft, um, you know, <laughs> huge, big international um, legal terms and whatnot, which is really what we need if we, if we want to talk about um, organizing power with, with, with um, big tech companies. But as individuals, we do have um, we do have a level of, I guess, control. And I think the more that those narratives are put out there, the more books like Carissa's and narratives um, that she's pushing forward are out there. Again, it just feels that this stuff isn't happening to us. It's not this thing that's really far away. There are big things that need to be done at high levels, absolutely, in terms of regulation. But, you know, if we want to, we can do things individually. We can think about things in different ways. That means that we just don't feel so like we're just following science and tech and that's happening happening to us without our um without our consent mm. no because i guess when it comes to control is something like quite close to home for us that like we're a performance marketing agency so like a lot of digital media buying and the team of analysts like the ones who've been doing it for five years plus or more like their jobs have changed like incredibly and then still changing at an incredible rate from what they had to do manually 
to now having to play a completely different role because Google has so many more data points that you could never even try and analyze yourself and make a decision. But it does kind of, I'm sure for some people, it probably breeds a bit of fear of like, oh, well, this whole robot's taking my job. Like, what, what, what's this going to become? But as you say, it's a case of the data is, the, is, is at the heart of it. And Well, also labor, also labor. Um, I think this is something that doesn't get spoke about enough as well, particularly when it comes to, to tech companies and, 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 well, and companies in general, when we start talking about robots stealing jobs, unionization is is a um, a massive force of power when done right organizing is a huge uh, form of citizen power that repeatedly gets quashed um, and a lot of people don't necessarily have a good view of it but that sort of is you know join a union that kind of narrative is is definitely rising nowadays even stronger um, than it was even five years ago so so the idea of organizing around it's not about going no robots allowed in this company because of course you do want productivity you do want companies to um to succeed which obviously then eventually helps workers if you have good labor relations because of course if you don't it doesn't get passed on those benefits of being able to be more creative because the robots have taken the menial jobs or whatever doesn't get that benefit doesn't get passed on to workers what happens is workers are laid off so you know organizing and understanding that there's power both in you as an individual and your data but also you and your labor as a worker um i think is really key when we start thinking about what is it that we can do what control can we have um you know moving forward is is there much organization and unionization happening in the sort of technology industry excuse it's, my ignorance no no it's growing it's growing um we've actually seen a lot of this with um the kind of strikes and whatnot with um uh, in Google, where they weren't happy about doing defense contracts, for instance, there was also a walkout when um, women walked out when they were talking about, I think it was a sexual assault case. So there is, you know, internal organizing that's happening. And there is a, a culture of that that I don't think we really talk about enough. And someone who ha- is writing about this and, and kind of is pushing forward this, let's stop saying there's not organizing happening in tech, but actually there is, and let's talk about it better, is Ben Tarnoff. He, um, uh, he's co-founder of Logic Magazine, which is a great magazine. It's kind of a um, more sort of... I guess lefty uh, look at, um, at technology, which I, I really rate. Also, um, people like Wendy Liu, who wrote "Abolish Silicon Valley," she talks a lot about power of organizing within within tech companies. I think the, the word "worker" is also it's, it's kind of got a bad rap in terms of uh, the tech world because I think a lot of people who work in tech don't consider themselves workers. Um, because they, they see themselves as having a, like a white collar job, right? And so they don't, a lot, a lot of time workers thought alongside this idea of like blue collar work, you know, mm. um, and, and unions tends to, you know, sometimes be thought of uh, like that too. But where I think a lot of this cultural shift happening is also in the media, where we're seeing a lot of media unions growing, the BuzzFeed union, the Wired union, the whatever. Um, so I think there's, there's, I guess, better coverage out there of what it means to organize nowadays. Um, and as I say, there is stuff happening with unions within different tech companies, sometimes not so, um, I guess, organized or formal. Um, sometimes there is more formal unions um, happening. But I think just the, even just talking about it like this and making it known that this is something that does give power to to people who work for companies as opposed to those leading them and the governments that they in the countries that they exist in um helps again to reframe you know 
the power that the, the tech industry has um, because it is based on those that are building it at the end of the day, right? It's not just happening. Mm. <laughs> there are people. And if those people decide that, you know, hey, I'm, I'm not happy about this or I want to do it a better way, there's a positive way of, about thinking about organizing. It's not just about going, oh, I don't like my boss and I want to get paid more. It's going, hey, we have a real opportunity here to create great things to make the world a better place. So let's make sure we're unified on that and make sure that we stick to that um, and are not kind of pulled out of that for by you know profit or whatever. Um, mm. you know, organizing can be a real force for for good in more ways than just making sure there's fairness. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I completely agree. I wanted to move on slightly and ask you a little bit about the sort of VC world. Mm. Um, so I know that you're uh, you're sort of advisor to a VC fund. Scouts, um, yes. <laughs> and how obviously that's a that's a, a, an industry which kind of thrives on hype. Like yeah. you need to build a lot of hype around your brand new product, which might be only half built half ready but you've got to tell this story of how it's gonna yeah make a massive change how do you see through the hype and measure the hype when it comes to understanding these early stage companies i mean in terms of how i see through it it's it's i mean due diligence right it's asking questions it's not just looking at a deck or a five minute pitch on stage it's going and speaking to people um who are at the company other people who are in the same market um you know academics um outside of the business side you know basically going what kind of technologies do we actually need here what's actually doable all that sort of stuff so um it's the same as what i'm sort of advocating for in the book is asking questions that mean you're not only looking at what's in front of you but trying to attack it from all different angles and see if it still holds water at the end you know what's the regulation in this space look like um what do what do the consumers want um is this environmentally um good or bad long term or short term or whatever asking a lot of different questions um to basically see whether the kind of hype that's being used is warranted or not and i think it kind of comes you know to this idea of what does it mean to like responsibly hype and and that's kind of i suppose that's also a question i'm looking at is like you know when i and i see a lot of hype right i get a lot of press releases in my inbox every day from from people who who want me to write about their companies or, or whatever and i think sometimes if i'm in a bad mood and i see something that i can just tell is hypey i'll be like oh no and delete or archive the email but when i'm in a better mood which is most of the time to be fair i try and be like okay they are just trying to get my attention pause for a second and let's now see if that was fair play or if it wasn't and it's just trying to kind of accept the fact that hype is needed a lot of the time in these spaces because it is really hard to cut through and that's also what particularly startups are being told to do by accelerators, mm. by VCs, uh, by the sort of culture. It's like, big up what you're doing, you know, and fake it till you make it and all these sorts of ideas, which are really inherent in sort of the sort of Silicon Valley culture, which is not just in Silicon Valley, but global. And so as someone who's coming in and looking at it, you have to accept that it doesn't necessarily mean that what the person's doing is rubbish and they're a bad, you know, not moralistic person because they've used hype but again just trying to ask those questions and see you know did they capture my attention in a way that also is mirrored behind by how good the thing is behind it how good the business model is how good for society it is um 
you know how nice the people are <laughs> there's a yeah. lot of different things that kind of go into that that thing but yeah and i always say just to add because i think a lot of people always ask me like what does it mean to responsibly hype um I always say it's two things. One, it's tell a system story. Don't tell a kind of problem solution story because there's not really such thing. You always exist within an ecosystem. So how do you exist within that system and what does that look like? Um, and the second one is make clear what is vision and what's reality. So we want to fix farming eventually is vision. <laughs> Saying we are fixing farming. Well, are mm. you? Are you actually? Like, are you doing that right now? And what do you mean by fixing? You know, I'm going to ask more questions if you talk about things as reality more so than vision. So it's, it's making really clear, okay, why is it you want to get up in the morning? Why are you excited about this? Why are you bothering? That's vision and reality. Okay, where actually are you at? What challenges do you have? But why do you think it's still going to work? Those are different things. So making sure those are those are clear. Those are my two sort of how do you responsibly hype things too. That's really interesting because, like, the we are fixing farming. I'm like, yeah, tell them, like, wow, what are you doing? Mm. Great. We hope to, or we plan to. It's like, okay, well. I know, I know, and this is what a lot come of back, come back to me, come back to me when you when you've done it. I know this is this is what a lot of pushback I get when I say these things. They go, but it's not as exciting. How are we going to capture attention? And I'm like, ah, I don't want to. I don't want to be dismissive, but I think it's lazy to think that you can't make things exciting without being bombastic and overclaiming. You can be exciting in many different ways. You can be exciting in a slow meandering way. That can be intriguing and mysterious and true and truthful. <laughs> so I think it's about trying to be a bit more frankly creative around how you tell your story and not just succumbing to the same old tropes that everyone else uses. Frankly, I have seen so many companies, so many agri-tech companies that tell me they're fixing farming that now I don't believe any of them. So actually I'm looking for a different narrative. I'm not excited by we're fixing farming. I'm like, yeah, yeah, okay, but what do you mean by that? You know? Um, so your reaction to we will one day, I actually would be like, oh, that's interesting. That's a different tact. Okay, that's nice. That's refreshing. So, mm. you know, I, I think it's about understanding what your competition looks like, how you're, you know, what is it that you have to cut through and how do you tell a story in a way that's fair um but tantalizing at the same time and mirrors why you bother doing it do you get up in the morning going i'm gonna fix farming no you don't you'll be thinking something else nobody actually does that um and if you do god really lean into that and tell me that that's what you're like every day fine but i don't believe mm. that every entrepreneur is like that i think they tend to be obsessive about really specific problems that really fascinate them um, or they're really annoyed about a particular story or a personal, um, I guess, experience or whatever. That tends to be why they do it. Um, so focusing a bit more on that and your vision surrounding it is not only more interesting, um, but I really do think it's more truthful. and You're less prone to end up um, sort of accidentally fooling people by using hype mm. as a tool. That's interesting, and that's the, I guess the, the the marketing challenge which wraps around so much of this is engineering your communications to tell a detail, tell an honest story about something, not just optimize for that one second yeah. of someone's attention, which you unfortunately usually can get these days. Yeah, and it's you know it's hard. It's like I mean, hey, if it was easy. An advertising and marketing industry wouldn't exist because everybody would just do it themselves, right? It, it is hard. It's, you know, people pay a lot of money for good marketing and advertising. Um, so I think to sort of 
say, oh, but it's really difficult to tell a system story. It's like, yeah, but it's also really difficult to start a company, but you're doing that. So don't just assume that marketing's the easy part and then be lazy with it. And I think that also comes back to, I think a lot of the sort of perspective that people, some people have that I guess social science and the arts is easier or not as important or whatever as the science and the tech, you know, we should invest lots in our coders and our developers and our uh, scientists and whatnot. And we should just, oh, we'll just do some tweeting and people will buy our product, you know, like that, that's not the reality of things. And, you know, if you really want to boil smoke and mirrors down to, to another kind of point or narrative, it's that words matter, which again, like sounds really obvious and um, kind of flippant. But again, I don't think it's something that we talk about enough in the tech industry. We don't talk enough about what words are we using and um, is it damaging to, you know, say the war on cancer is using that connotation problematic and why? Or is it not? Are we overthinking it? But let's think about it first and come to that conclusion as opposed to dismissing it and going, oh, it's just a word, whatever. Hmm. That's because I, I watched your TED talk from a few years ago about, I guess, the, the openness and transparency element of, of all this and making stuff accessible, making mm-hmm. science and technology more accessible to people. Yes. And uh, yeah, I think that's it's quite it's quite an interesting one when you say that yeah the words matter. It's like if you can do doing the work is one thing, but people need to see it. People need to understand it. You need to get yeah. the message out there. This is like it's, this is like a really big debate, particularly within science academia. It's like whose responsibility is it to get the word out about science and t- about like I guess research is happening in the lab, right? And scientists who are doing the work, some scientists say, well, it's not my responsibility. My responsibility is to do the research. And it's the university's PR department that's uh, that's in charge of making sure people read my research. I've put it in a journal. They can look at the journal. Well, no, they can't because they have to pay to access it and they normally can't read it because it's written in another language. But they kind of, you know, wash their hands and go, I've done, I'm a researcher. I've done my research. That's my job. Other people say, well, actually, no, because you're probably the only person that really, fully, truly understands it. And you shouldn't really trust anyone else to try and translate um so you should train yourself up and make sure that you understand what it means to communicate and therefore you should communicate it but then of course you have Mm. people who are communicators who go communication is actually kind of hard and we have expertise in that so let us do it um so but you have so you have these like various different ideas around what it means to communicate science and you know if it was easy to solve it would have been solved it's not solved and you know I, i mentioned in a ted talk it isn't just about um you know, how do, what words do we use? What press releases do we use? How do we talk to the press? It's also, is the way of sharing knowledge through the academic journals that you have to pay to access that are written in a language that most people don't understand, even the best way to be sharing um, sharing knowledge, right? And, and I think it's, you know, there's sharing knowledge between peers, there's sharing knowledge with companies, there's sharing knowledge with governments, there's sharing knowledge with the public, and arguably all of those need adapted i mean god is advertising 101 know your audience adapt your comms to your audience Mm. um but you know there's there's a lot of work to be done to be better um in communicating science and you know god go to any conference on science communication and you'll get a million different responses and answers about how we do it and it's a big open question that that needs solved and you know when i was at ogilvy um you know it was 2016 i stopped working there and one of the things i was kind of really interested in at the end was you know should ogilvy as a company 
move into academic comms is that you know and obviously a lot of advertising companies have like um medical outfits and whatnot but that's more with pharmaceutical companies more so with universities and i was like is this an opportunity is this a business opportunity for advertising companies Mm. to really move into communication science um i don't think the answer is necessarily yes um but i think it's something worth thinking about and certainly the world of science world and academia has a lot to learn from the industries that invest tons and tons of money on learning how best to communicate, which is the advertising and marketing industries. Gemma, I've just got three final questions for you. Firstly, what did you used to believe that you no longer believe in? So many things. I mean, I don't even know where to start. <laughs> I think, okay, I'll go, I'll go, I'll go for, I'll go for, I'm going to give you two answers. The first one is I, I used to believe when I was in fourth year of high school, so the end of my standard grade, grades, which is GCSEs to you in England, that electrons sat in really specific layers around um, around the center of the of the atom around the nucleus. And then in my... Like, like the diagram you see. Yes, on the, exactly. On the, the circles. On the the exactly. Yeah, got you. But then when I went into fifth year and started my higher, or was it my advanced higher? Anyway, I went into the next year. And the first thing the chemistry teacher told me is, you know, we told you that thing about the electrons and layers. It's kind of actually not true. And... I was distraught when I learned this. And the reason I'm telling you this story is because, first of all, I was distraught by the idea that you would be taught science and then be told it's not quite true. That kind of was, I think, the first time that I started being like, huh, okay, science has to sort of dumb things down sometimes, but then you lose specificity. And how do I feel about that? I don't feel good about that. Oh, that makes me feel strange. Um, second of all, I hated the idea that my teacher, who I trusted and you know inherently with, with science, was telling me that they'd essentially lied to me the year before, which then made me think a lot about, well, you know, is science something that we should just learn or are we meant to question it? It was the first time I kind of thought of science as not this thing that was just taught to us. Um, and then over time, I guess, so I've changed to thinking that science is not something that you just, you know, learn by rote. It's something you engage with. And I know that's probably just repeating everything I'm saying, but I want to tell that specific story because I think a lot of people lose faith in science at that point when they find out that what they learn in school isn't exactly true. But I don't, I don't think it's about losing faith. It's actually about going, huh, there's so, this is actually so much more interesting than learning things from a textbook what was prioritized by the teacher when you're in fourth year is there's a conceptual understanding we need to get across here a core conceptual idea here which we have to communicate in a certain overly simplified way before it can be understood in any greater detail yeah it's interesting there's quite a few moments like that in school i think i in life I mean, when you say what's something you used to believe, you don't believe now, God, there was, I mean, I don't know, there was probably something that I read this morning on Twitter that changed my mind about something that I thought yesterday. I mean, that, that's, that's the way it should be. Right. Mm. And I, you know, yeah, you can have really big changes. Some people are religious and then they're not, you know, whatever those, those are kind of big fundamental shifts of what you used to believe and what you don't. But actually I think if you only, if you don't change what you believe frequently, you're not learning, you're not reading, you're, you're, you're not open. Um, so I don't know, probably I, I believed I could run faster this morning than I did. And so now I don't believe it. <laughs> had a bad day. I think, you know, and I think it's, it's, it sounds trite, but, um, I think even just this idea of updating beliefs is this huge, big thing. Um, maybe that's another thing that we should change our beliefs around. Um, second question, if this wasn't your mission, what would be? 
I don't know, it would it would probably be something that maybe isn't so linked to feeling like you have to change the world somehow because I get really caught up in that. Like I, I, I always feel like I have to be doing stuff that has impact. So if I wasn't doing that, I'd probably do something that I don't think has very much impact. Like, I don't know, becoming like the, the world's best dolphin trainer or something. I don't know, just picking something that I think is really interesting, inherently fascinating and through my own framework of what's impactful and what's not would not be if that makes sense mm, um because i'm quite i'm quite a kind of i get quite obsessed with stuff and and whatnot but i think the thing that stops me from going all in on things to too much of an extent is going okay pause for a second how how is this relevant how is this useful and and whatnot and sometimes that's um it's a blessing and a curse i think shall we say <laughs> but yeah i don't know be, yeah. be the world's best dolphin trainer let's go with that <laughs> I love that. I love that. And and finally, Gemma, if you could recommend one book for members of the Journey Further book club to read, what would it be? Do you know what? I'm going to go with um, Grace Blakely's books called Stolen. I think the subtitle is How to Save the World from Financialization, something like that. Um, okay. I loved that book. I read it, uh, I think, earlier on this year it was. Um, it's basically all about financialization um and it's basically sort of the history of how we got to here in terms of um you know financial crisis austerity debt all these sorts of things and that that sounds a bit dry i'm not selling it very well but i it was one of those books that i read that once i put it down i was like whoa i feel like i've just got a completely different understanding of the world than i did a couple of days ago before I picked this book up. And it's really brilliantly argued, really well set out, brilliantly explained. It kind of, instead of talking about financial crisis being this recent thing based only on, you know, mortgages or whatever, it traces um, the sort of history of neoliberalism, capitalism, um, what happens post-war, all that sort of stuff. Um, I think it's a really great thing for people nowadays to be reading even if you don't think it's going to be relevant or interesting or whatnot it's massively made me understand a lot more politics um a lot more economics it makes a lot of the stuff that's happening in terms of the the covid crisis make a lot more sense um but i think it also really helps enhance your understanding of left right politics which i really believe more people should engage with and it's I don't mean you have to go and join a party, but even just really understand the arguments people have. And it's a great, great book for just laying out all of that through the lens of of, uh, of money and banks. So yeah, highly recommend. Fantastic. Thank you, Gemma. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. I mean, there's so much interesting stuff there to dig into. And yeah, I'd really recommend people, uh, people go and pick up a copy of Spoken Mirrors. Yeah, please do. And let me know what you think. I mean, I'm really, I'm really big on... Um, what I really wanted from Smoke and Mirrors was that it started discussions and arguments and conversations and debates and whatnot. Um, and so I always love to hear what, what people think of it, um, even if they've only read one chapter or whatever. It's always awesome to uh, to hear what they agree with and what they disagree with and what has made them think. So yeah, please do. Thank you so much for listening. I would love to get your feedback through a rating or a review in your podcast app. That would be amazing. Here's a sneak preview of what we've got coming up over the next four weeks on the podcast. We have Seth Godin, the one and only Seth Godin, talking about his new book, The Practice. I spoke with Shamil Thakra from Dishoom about how they've grown that amazing brand. 
We'll be hearing the story of what three words, the tech startup who are remapping the globe. And we'll also be revisiting Be More Pirate in its newest form with Alex Barker. Do flip back to episode eight with Sam Conniff to learn a bit more about that. New episodes out every Tuesday now, so hit subscribe to be the first to hear them.